Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 22 in the series Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 8th of November 2009, entitled The Fundamentals, His Visible Return, Part 7. And the Bible readings are taken from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 to 5. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. If you'd like to be opening your Bibles... First of all, to the book of Revelation, chapter 17. This is just a uh, copy most of you should already have, I think, your timeline of the second coming that we've been using. If anybody doesn't, if our stewards would just, there's some more copies on the back table back there. You'd slip your hand up because I know that uh, it's kind of small on the screen up there, and uh, uh, you'll be able to read it better. And also, one of the book of Revelation, Brother Panos, if you could just get uh, both of them there. We'll be looking at those this morning during the, uh, uh, during the sermon. While he's getting those for you, if you hold your finger there at, uh, at Revelation chapter 17 and turn back just a, a few pages in your Bible to Second uh, Thessalonians. And uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we read this passage when we first began to look at the second coming. And again, while you're turning there, if you will have noticed in your uh, bulletin that uh, we're now up to number 22 in the series that we have been going through on contending for the faith. And of course, as Christians, we are to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to us. As we've gone through that, we began looking at some of the fundamentals of that faith. And don't let that word scare you. The simple truth is those things that are are fundamental are those things that are essential, those things that, uh, that literally cannot under any circumstance be done away with. And we said that there are fundamentals to this faith that we must contend for, that we must be willing to fight for, regardless of what society does, regardless of what other churches do, regardless of what other Christians do. We've got to be willing to stand and to fight for those fundamentals. Now, it is not coincidence or accident if you notice that though we're up to number 22 in the entire series, When we made it to the fundamental of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we're on the 11th in that one. So half of the sermons that we've seen in this series so far have been looking at Jesus Christ, our Lord. And of course, there are many things that we must believe correctly about, but there is nothing in all the world that is more fundamental and essential to our Christian faith than what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And of course, we've been looking now, this is the seventh sermon in what we have called His Visible Return to this Earth and the things that are, uh, that are fundamental about that. And of course, that's why you have your study charts there that, we're, that we'll be looking at. And of course, today we're up on that chart. Uh, if you see there at the top about midway across to the return with His church to the earth. Now, let's read from God's Word and then uh, give you just a little bit of background and we'll try to to plunge in here so that we can can get what the Lord would have for us uh, today. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 17. I invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's precious and holy Word. 
It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you in peace from God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that in this reading here that it is the Apostle Paul that is writing to the church at Thessalonica. Now, if you look with me down to chapter 2, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the Antichrist himself he's speaking of here, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For well, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. He that hinders, he that restrains. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him, who's coming after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. For we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And then in Revelation chapter 17, Verses 1 through 5. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither. I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls 
having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the privilege of being in your house once again today. Father, we thank you that we can have a confidence not in ourselves, not in our flesh, not in our accomplishments, but in your grace and your, grace and your mercy towards us. We can have confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Lord, we can have confidence in your word that you preserved and left for us today and the Holy Spirit that lives and dwells within us that will enlighten these words to our heart. Father, we pray for thy anointing today. Not that man in any way would be lifted in this place, but that your word would be magnified and spoken forth as you would have it. Father, would you speak to each heart? May they know that they're hearing straight from heaven, not from fleshly man. You know those that are here that are lost that need to be saved. You know the backslider that needs to be restored. You know the Christian that's struggling, that has burdens, that has specific uh, trials in their lives right now. Lord, you know exactly what they need to strengthen them and to encourage them. Father, you know each and every Christian that's committed to you. You know what lies ahead in the week, in the month, and whatever time we have ahead of us. We pray that you would build them up in the faith. Build this church up, Lord that it might be strong in one heart, in unity, standing with Jesus Christ as our head, that all that we do magnifies and glorifies Him. For it's in His name we pray. Amen and amen. As we have been looking at the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ, keep this in mind even as we proceed today. I've made the statement unashamedly that I believe clearly from Scripture that the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth is a fundamental of the Christian faith which must be believed. Now, as we have begun to look at this visible return and what is fundamental, we've also gone a step farther because it's prudent for us to do so at this time. I recognize and realize that all of our brothers and sisters in Christ do not believe the timing the same way that we do. But I also realize that for us as a local church, it is very important. And it's very important that we know what we believe and not that it's just something that's written in our statement of faith that tells the world that we're premillennialist in our uh, eschatology as to when the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. But why do we believe these things? And what do these terms really mean to us? And so we've been looking. And that's why you have your timeline there, which we have said clearly that even though we have brothers and sisters of Christ that don't agree with this, this is where we as a local church stand, and we believe that it's very, very important that we understand these truths. Now, if you're looking at your timeline there before you, we, of course, we began our study on this visible return by defining the importance of the second coming of Christ, his visible return. We moved on to, from that to describing the meaning of just what it was that we actually meant by his second coming. But then we've been several weeks now on detailing the action. 
what were the events, where they're taking place and how they're taking place. We began by looking at the rapture of his church in the air. You see there on your line from the present age that that's the very next thing. And I believe that it is the next thing on God's time schedule. I believe with all of my heart that there is absolutely nothing according to Scripture that would hinder that trumpet sounding before this service even comes to a close today. The remaining scriptures that must be fulfilled before the second coming are those things that can be fulfilled during the seven years of tribulation before Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom upon this earth. Nothing hindering that trumpet sound today. We looked, as we looked at the rapture of his church, we looked at the resurrection of the dead in Christ. We looked at the renovation of the living in Christ. We looked at the raptured saints in heaven, the judgment seat of Christ, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then we began looking at the remaining sinners on earth, those that were left behind as they go into this great tribulation period. We looked at what the Bible taught us about this great tribulation period that's in red there on your chart. We looked at the Olivet Discourse in Mark uh, chapter 24 where Jesus himself spoke of these things. We looked at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament at the 70th week of Daniel, which we believe parallels with this. And then we looked into the book of Revelation, that revelation that was given to John by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we looked as you uh, only see as the, during those seven years of tribulation and where we're coming up to there, we also gave you a a chart that hopefully that you uh, uh, have there because I know that it'll be difficult for you to uh, read on the chart up here, but basically it is just an outline of the book of Revelation. Now, folks, this is not something that's in concrete. You don't have to study Revelation this way. One of the reasons that I put this chart together was the simple fact that so many people are afraid of the book of Revelation. Just start our reading today and it's talking about, you know, this beast and all of these horns and what all these things mean and whatnot. This is simply to allow you to see God doesn't give us his word that we might be confused. He gives us his word that we might understand. This is simply a, a study chart that will take you through, through seven sevens in studying uh, the book of Revelations in just a practical way that it's laid out going through it verse by verse and trying to show you as you look at it all together just what it is and how it all fits together in God's plan. Now, this past week, we, uh, we moved up to, uh, let me just make this a little bit bigger for you up here on the, uh, uh, on the screen. We've looked on our chart of the revelations. We've looked already at the, of course, we just touched on the seven churches. We looked at the seven seals and the seven trumpets. We looked at the seven personages and the seven vials. That's where we left off Sunday before last. And we come back now to number six, which is labeled dooms in your left-hand column there. And we find that the first thing that is listed there, and it's the last one that you find in red on your chart, is the fall of Babylon. Now, everything on your chart there that's in red are those things that are taking place during the seven years of tribulation that is outlined in red on your other chart. And we find that as we uh, look here today, we want to realize that it is this fall of Babylon that is the last event that will come to fruition at the end of the seven years of tribulation when Jesus Christ himself comes back to set up his kingdom. And that's what we're reading about there in, in chapter 17 of the book of Revelation. 
And I want to draw your attention back there. And first of all, I want you to, to get a, a, a simple uh, realization of just what this talks about here in his vision. Uh, we find that uh, uh, John says that uh, uh, the angel called him forth and says, I'll show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, speaking of spiritual fornication here, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Her power has gone out, her influence upon mankind. John says, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, what we have here symbolically, which is not where we're going to spend our time today, is simply on the first instance, we've got the Antichrist, which is that beast. And these heads and these horns are symbolic of the power, the influence that he's going to have, the ten horns representative of apparently the ten divisions of regions that are going to be divided up between ten kings under his rule and whatnot, is simply a vision of the Antichrist himself and setting upon her this scarlet whore. None other than the one world religious system that will be put into place at that time, Babylon symbolic of the power that she will have. But at the same time, we see as we begin to look that at this end of this tribulation, we're not exactly given a, a pity patty as far as the picture of what's there. He doesn't beat around the bush. He says, the great whore, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The folks there's been very, very much speculation over the subject of who Babylon represents. How many of you have read some of them and heard some of them? How many of you have read or heard more than one? And of course, you know, the thing is, is that we can go back and, and, and let me say this, first of all, that there's nothing wrong with being curious, but such speculation is really pointless. There have always been spiritual harlots even as John was writing at this time, these words of prophecy that we have before us, God's people have always suffered at the hands of false systems of religion. Now, if we truly believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, which just means literally that we believe that he can come at any time, at any moment, that there's nothing hindering it and that he's coming soon, it stands to reason that if that be the case, we ought to be able to look around us and to speculate because we see the feasibility of both the religious and political systems that will be in place following the rapture. We find that I know that as we look at many things, we could begin to go. There are many that believe that Babylon is simply Rome there are many believe that it's Rome in conjunction with Islam and the other false religions that have all come together under one as we see the World Council of Churches today and many of those things coming together. There are some that believe that Babylon is the United States of America with all of its power that, that will be used of Satan and then be destroyed during the tribulation. You know, the truth is it's all speculation because God doesn't tell us any of that. 
It is important for us to recognize and realize the only reason that speculation can be there is because we can look around and we can see the possibilities and we know with absolute certainty that there is going to be a false system of religion that is going to rise, that is going to sweep across this world, and we see it happening before our eyes more and more every day that we live and breathe. That is part of what happens when the fundamentals are thrown away, when people will not contend for those things, when they say that those things don't matter. The truth is that the truth matters very much. And there are certainties here that we can know without any need of speculation whatsoever. Keep in mind that what we see taking place here in this tribulation period is far beyond anything that this world has ever seen or experienced before. There will be an alignment of a one-world false system of religion that is going to align itself with the Antichrist himself and his one-world government. The Antichrist and his subordinate kings that we're reading about here they will use this false religious system for their own gain to be able to unify the world and to pull the world all together and to think that they're doing grand and they'll do it as long as it suits them. And I believe that happens to be the first three and a half years of this seven years of tribulation here. But then they're going to return even themselves on that religious system to destroy it. Why? First of all, because it's the fulfillment of God's will. It is setting the Antichrist himself up as the one to be worshipped for the last half of that seven and a half years of tribulation. Look with me in chapter 17 still. Look down in verses 15 to 18. It says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. He's giving him an explanation of the vision that he's seen. Remember what we first saw? That he saw the horse sitting upon many waters. He says that that water is simply a symbol of the multitudes of all the peoples and tongues and nations upon this world. He says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall Hate the whore. This is where that these ten, these ten kings that we'll find out, they're going to turn on the whore, on the false religious system, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Notice verse 17, very important. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill His will. It is God's will. Recognize and realize and remember, no matter what, folks, God is in control. These things are not happening because that He has been defeated in any area. Nothing has ever surprised Him in the world. He is sovereign. He is in control. And it says here that the false system of religion, the whore, will be put down by the Antichrist and his own minion, his, his ten kings that are there working for him in conjunction with him because God has put it in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto 
the beast, unto the Antichrist himself, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. We find that as we look here that this war is going to have tremendous, tremendous influence. We also know for a fact that Babylon, both the spiritual and political aspects of it, whoever and whatever that it may represent, we know this for a fact, that Babylon will be, it will come into existence, it will take control of this world, but it is doomed, it will be destroyed because God himself will destroy it. Notice what he says there in verse 14, still in chapter 17. Again, he says, These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called the chosen and the faithful. Oh, yes. The Antichrist and all of his kings that are ruling with him on this world, they're going to all rise up but they will be defeated. This vert is pointing directly to the battle of Armageddon that so many times is used in, in many false ways. There will be a battle like this world has never seen before. We find that as you look down into chapter 18, notice what it says in verse 1 and 2, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And he goes on to paint a pretty gruesome picture. Babylon the great is fallen. We find that but keep in mind now that these two chapters, they're summarizing the rise and the fall of Babylon. And therefore, the other events that we've been looking at on your chart that are outlined in, in red there, these have been taking place. The rise of the horror begins right back here in the very beginning of the tribulation. And these events are taking place simultaneously as she rises to power and as she's put down and as the Antichrist himself then sets himself up to be worshipped rather than the God even of the false prophet. We find that the tribulation period that we see here, many of these horrific events that we have looked at over the past few weeks, they will be coming about at the same time that we see these events that are covering the fall of Babylon. The prophet Isaiah foresaw the ultimate destruction of Babylon at the second coming of Christ. Even back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah chapter 13, if you'd like to turn there, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but we'll read verses 1 through 13 here. He says, the burden of Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos did see, lift ye up a banner upon the high mountain, 
exalt the voice unto them, shake the hand that they may go into the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for mine anger, even them that rejoice in my highness. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like as of a great people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts mustereth the host of the battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven, even the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Howl ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. When the Lord Jesus Christ comes back in his anger and his fury, and be not mistaken, he came the first time at the first advent when he came in that manger and he grew as a man and he died upon that cross and he rose the third day from that grave. He came to be your Savior. He wants to be your Savior today while there's still time. He wants to be Lord of your life. But when that trumpet sounds and when he comes back the second time, folks, it will be too late. There aren't any more chances. There aren't any more opportunities. Recognize he's coming his second time in judgment. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt. Their courage is going to go away. Their strength is going to be as nothing because they're going to be before the mighty power of God Almighty himself. He says, and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrows shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. So many today don't even begin to comprehend or recognize what this world is going to be like. We have looked at graphic pictures of what it's going to be like on this earth once the Christians are taken out of here. But even that, all that we've seen, I mean all of these horrible things that we've seen with the seals, and with the vials, with all of this destruction being brought up on this earth, that's only a foretaste. But when the Lord Jesus Christ comes, you say, Preacher, how can that be a love of God? Well, you don't understand sin if you don't understand that. You must recognize how horrible sin is. We sang earlier about a holy God, that that holy God is Jesus Christ. If we can begin to comprehend if we comprehend and look around us, all the horrible things of this world are a result of sin, not because of God, but because of a lack of God. 
we find that religion itself can be a great enemy, just as it will during the seven years of tribulation. So if you've got your timeline there, you see that this is the event, this rise and fall of Babylon that will take place during that period. This outlined is red there. But you see there the return of Christ to the earth with his church. Now we've seen in both of these passages concerning the fall of Babylon that the ultimate destruction coincides with Christ's return to the earth with his saints. We must recognize that when Christ returns to earth this time, he is coming in judgment as he pours out his wrath and his anger, beginning with Babylon itself. He brings an end to this great period of tribulation with the final destruction of Babylon that has been governing and ruling during that time. Note that Revelation chapter 19 it begins with a vision in heaven. We find that these are gathered at what is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we've already looked at that. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there this morning. I just want to read these verses to you simply. In Revelation chapter 19, notice that as we begin reading here in verses uh, 1 through 10, it says, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. By this time the saints have already gone through the judgment seat of Christ. Now the bride, the church has been made ready for the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on he says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We find that we're getting just a glimpse of that marriage supper of the Lamb that is, that is taking place there. But notice in the next verse, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress and the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ returning with his saints. The Bible describes it here that he's coming with his armies is what it says there in verse 14, Brother Steve. Who are those armies? We'll turn back into the Old Testament again to the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah, chapter 14. Zechariah, next to the last book in your Old Testament, chapter 14. Notice what he says here in verses 1 through 5. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled. And the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountains shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Listen, and the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. <laughs> oh, the Lord's coming. And he will, I believe, just as sure as you're sitting in that pew right there, he's coming to sit down on the Mount of Olives once again, praise God. He's coming personally. That same Jesus that went away is coming again in like manner, the Bible says. He came, and he's called the church out. But now the second stage of that second coming, he's coming all the way to the earth this time. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Just in case you're not convinced, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians. Notice what it says in chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you, to the end... He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with what? With all His saints to be established for that day, for the coming with all of His saints. Notice with me also in 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now, what are we talking about here? We read this passage in talking about the rapture, didn't we? 
Notice what he goes on to, uh, to say here. He goes on to say, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Well, if he's coming back to earth, the Bible has already promised those that have been raptured, he's going to bring them with him when he comes in verse 14. Notice also down what it says in verse 17. It says, Then which we are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now that was the rapture that took place, wasn't it? And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And the word ever there means always and forever. Once we've been raptured out to meet him again in the sky, he says we will always be with him from that point. So when the Lord Jesus Christ leaves heaven after the marriage supper of the land and returns to this earth, we're all coming with him, praise God. We're all coming with him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Notice what it says in verses 7 to 10. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Don't get nervous. All the glory of this battle is going to him. And say, well, you know, I'm not real keen on getting on a horse and coming back to, to fight in the biggest battle that's ever been fought. I mean, when you want to start reading your Bible and looking at, at some of the prophecies of what this battle of Armageddon is going to be like, folks, there's going to be bloodshed like this earth has never seen before. I don't want to be involved in something like that. Guess what? He says you're coming back with him. But nowhere does he say you'll have to fight the battle. <laughs> the battle is his. And the battle is won. Jesus Christ himself will defeat the enemy. But we're going to be there with him, and all the glory will be his. These verses can leave us in little doubt whatsoever. If we take them for what they say instead of try to, to make them into something that they're not, they tell us clearly that Jesus Christ is returning to this earth. He's coming personally. He's coming visibly that every eye will see it. And that when he does so, the saints, his church will be with him. It's also clear that when he returns, he's returning not as Savior this time, but as judge. And his judgment will be seen and clearly known. Christ is coming back, folks. And he's returning with his saints, and he's returning to do battle. We've already read there in, in Revelation chapter 19. Now notice what, where the Word of God picks up there in verse 17 of chapter 19. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. He's calling the fowls of the air. For a feast, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sat on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse 
and against his army. Turn back to Revelation chapter 16, which we've already looked at. Remember what he said there in verses 13 to 16? And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon. You'll notice that that's highlighted. That's just, that's in black in there on your, on your start charts. Come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth into the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to battle, to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Armageddon. Valley Megiddo. We find that Jesus Christ is returning, folks. He's returning with his saints from heaven. And he's returning to do battle on everybody that's not with him. And Christ returns when he comes to do battle. He's going to bring doom to his enemies. You can count on it. We've already seen the doom of Babylon. Now I want you to notice further the destruction that he brings on his enemy here in verse 20. Again of chapter, uh, of chapter 19 still. And the beast was taken with him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image, these both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Whichever, if you're looking at your study chart, you'll find there number two and number three under the dooms in verse chapter 19, verse 20, the beast who is none other than the Antichrist himself and the false prophet are both cast into the lake of fire. If you've got your timeline, those are labeled for you right there at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth. So we've got the doom of Babylon, the doom of the Antichrist, the doom of the false prophet. And then notice in verse 21, and the remnant, all those that were left were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse by Jesus. Nobody else is doing the fighting here. Which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. You see, we see that the return of Jesus Christ to this earth, the second stage of that coming, seven years following the rapture, which is, when it all began, it will be a return to this earth with his saints. We also see that he comes in judgment to do battle with his enemies and to bring about their final doom. The return of Christ to the earth will bring about the end of what we know is the seven years of great tribulation here. And it will usher in what is highlighted as green there on your time chart the millennial reign of Christ on this earth for 1,000 years. Before we look at that great event, probably next Sunday, God willing, if the trumpet doesn't sound before then, I want to draw your attention back to the passage where we began today in closing. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the passage that we read in the beginning, I want to read just... Three verses there again. 
And this is the thought that I want to leave you with, and I want you to listen hard. If you haven't picked up everything because I've been speaking too fast and going too quick, please note what these verses say. Verse 10 says, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Listen to me carefully, folks. If it's not enough for you to be prepared for the return of Christ, that you might spend this seven years that we've been looking at in heaven with Jesus Christ rather than upon this earth for all the, with all the atrocities that will be taking place here, if there's still some idea that if you somehow miss out on that rapture that could take place either with your next heartbeat being your last or with the trumpet sounding and the rapture taking you out of here, those chances come to an end. You might think that, oh, if the rapture takes place, then I'll, I'll know for certain that all this stuff is real that they've been talking about. I'll be able to get things straightened out and sorted out during that tribulation period so that I can go on to be in heaven. If you think somehow that you have any other chance offered to you to prepare for eternity, other than right now, right here this morning, while you're still breathing. Folks, none of us know. I don't care how young, how old. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm not saying this to play on your emotions. Nobody knows when that next heartbeat will be your last. Nobody knows when that trumpet will sound. We need to make certain today that you understand the ramifications of just what's being said here in verses 10 to 12. According to these verses, the only sure opportunity that you have for heaven over hell, for life over death, is right now, right here, this moment. Because if you receive not the love of truth, it says here, that you might be saved, it seems that after the rapture, after your last heartbeat, there is no more hope, period, full stop. Today, right now, each and every person here, you have either received or rejected the love of the truth in your life. And each and every individual, that's the only two choices you have here this morning to receive or to reject it. You see, there aren't any other opportunities open to you. And if you don't understand, the truth is, I've told this church time and time again, and I'll repeat it once more right here in finishing off this sermon. You know, God loves you more than your mind can even begin to comprehend or imagine. God loves you so much that he's taken all of the penalty for your sins upon himself. 
Jesus Christ accomplished everything because you could not do it yourself. You couldn't become religious enough. You couldn't say enough prayers. There's not a prayer that's ever saved anybody. There's not a vision that's ever saved anybody. There's not a, 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 a run down to the altar that's ever saved anybody. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. No words in all the world can save you. You can pray until you're blue in the face, and yet it's in your heart that you must believe and accept, and then those words will come out. We find that there is no alternative, and God has done it all for you. But listen, I've said many times, if you're the greatest sinner, the most moral, the most godly person without God that's ever walked the face of the earth, but if you've ever told one lie, you've ever been disobedient one time, if you've ever taken even a rubber band or a pencil that didn't belong to you, if you've ever thought an ungodly thought that you shouldn't have thought, it was one sin of disobedience in the garden that brought sin and death. If God lets you into heaven, there could be no more heaven. You'd bring the same consequences that it brought to this earth. That's what sin does. God wants you to be forgiven. He wants you in heaven for eternity, but your sin must be dealt with. You can't go into heaven with your sin, and he's done everything to pay for that sin. And as we look at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it does anything for us at all, it ought to challenge us to be absolutely certain if we know anything in this world, we know we're ready to face him. We know that with certainty. There's no doubt. If there's a doubt in your mind, if there's a doubt in your heart, you need to sort that out here today while you've got time, while you've got opportunity. Know that if you don't know anything else in this world. When you leave here today, know you're ready to face him, that you're ready to meet him, not because of you, but because of what Jesus Christ did for you. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you, Lord, for each one that has been here to be a part of this and Lord, you knew every person that would be here. You know every heart. You know every need. I know none of those things. I only know what you've laid up on our hearts to preach here this day. Father, I pray that through the weaknesses of this flesh that you've been able to take your spirit and speak to hearts in a way that is beyond man. And I pray now that if there be those in our midst that are lost that need to be saved, there's the backsliders that need to be restored. If there's Christians that have special needs that need to be dealt with, I pray that you would meet with each and every one of them as only you can. Father, you know the hearts of each individual here, and we just commit them to you. For these that don't have the certainty of their salvation, these that want a closer walk with you, Father, we pray that these hearts would be responsive to what you're saying to them today. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen and amen. Mm -hmm.